Aerosmith by Sinclair Lewis, Chapter 25 Then, for a year, with each day longer than a sleepless night, yet the whole year speeding without events or seasons or eagerness, Martin was a faithful mechanic in that most competent, most clean and brisk and visionless medical factory, the Roundsfield Clinic. He had nothing of which to complain. The clinic did perhaps give over many rentgenological examinations to socially dislocated women who needed children and floor scrubbing more than pretty little skyographs. They did perhaps view all tonsils with too sanguinary a gloom. But certainly no factory could have been better equipped or more gratifyingly expensive. And none could have routed its raw human material through so many processes so swiftly. The Martin Aerosmith, who had been supercilious toward Pickerbaugh and old Dr. Winters, had for Roundsfield and Angus Dewar and the other keen taut specialists of the clinic only the respect of the poor and uncertain for the rich and shrewd. He admired Angus's firmness of purpose and stability of habit. Angus had a swim or a fencing lesson daily. He swam easily and fenced like a still-faced demon. He was in bed before 11.30. He never took more than one drink a day. And he never read anything or said anything which would not contribute to his progress as a brilliant young surgeon. His underlings knew that Dr. Dewar would not fail to arrive precisely on time, precisely well-dressed, absolutely sober, very cool, and appallingly unpleasant to any nurse who made a mistake or looked for a smile. Martin would, without fear, have submitted to the gilded and ardent tonsil-snatcher of the clinic, would have submitted to Angus for abdominal surgery, or to Roundsfield for any operation of the head or neck, providing he was himself sure the operation was necessary. But he was never able to rise to the clinic's faith that any portions of the body without which people could conceivably get along should certainly be removed at once." The real flaw in his year of Chicago was that through all his working day he did not live. With quick hands and one-tenth of his brain, he made blood counts, did urinalyses and Wassermans, and infrequent necropsies, and all the while he was dead, in a white-tiled coffin. Amid the blattings of Pickerbaugh and the peepings of Wheatsylvania, he had lived, he had fought his environment. Now— there was nothing to fight. After hours, he almost lived. Leora and he discovered the world of bookshops and print shops and theaters and concerts. They read novels and history and travel. They talked, at dinners given by Roundsfield or Angus, to journalists, engineers, bankers, merchants. They saw a Russian play and heard Misha Elman and read Gottlieb's beloved Rabelais. Martin learned to flirt without childishness, and Leora went for the first time to a hairdresser and to a manicure, and began her lessons in French. She had called Martin a lie hunter, a truth seeker. They decided now, talking it over in their tight little two-and-a-quarter room flat, that most people who called themselves truth seekers, persons who scurry about chattering of truth as though it were a tangible, separable thing, like houses or salt or bread, 
did not so much desire to find truth as to cure their mental itch. In novels, these truth-seekers quested the secret of life in laboratories which did not seem to be provided with Bunsen flames or reagents. Or they went, at great expense and much discomfort, from hot trains and undesirable snakes to Himalayan monasteries, to learn from unaseptic sages that the mind can do all sorts of edifying things if one will but spend thirty or forty years in eating rice and gazing on one's navel. To these high matters Martin responded, Rot. He insisted that there is no truth, but only many truths, that truth is not a colored bird to be chased among the rocks and captured by its tail, but a skeptical attitude toward life. He insisted that no one could expect more than, by stubbornness or luck, to have the kind of work he enjoyed, and an ability to become better acquainted with the facts of that work than the average job-holder. His mechanistic philosophy did not persuade him that he was progressing adequately. When he tried to match himself with the experts of the clinic, or with their professional friends, he was even more uncomfortable than he had been under the disconcerting scorn of Dr. Hesselink of Groningen. At clinic luncheons he met surgeons from London, New York, Boston, men with limousines and social positions and the offensive briskness of the man who has numerous engagements, or the yet more offensive quietness of the person who is amused by his inferiors. Master technicians, readers of papers at medical congresses, executives and controllers, unafraid to operate before a hundred peering doctors, or to give well-bred and exceedingly final orders to a subordinates. Captain generals of medicine, never doubting themselves, great priests and healers, men mature and wise and careful and blandly cordial. In their winged presences, Max Gottlieb seemed an aged fusser, Gustav Sondalius a mountebank, and the city of Nautilus unworthy of passionate warfare. As their suave courtesy smothered him, Martin felt like a footman. In long hours of increasing frankness and lucidity, he discussed with Leora the question of, What is this Martin Arrowsmith, and whither is he going? and he admitted that the sight of the famous surgeons disturbed his ancient faith that he was somehow a superior person. It was Leora who consoled him. I've got a lovely description for your dratted famous surgeons. You know how polite and important they are, and they smile so carefully. Well, don't you remember you once said that Professor Gottlieb called all such people like that men of measured merriment? He caught up the phrase. They sang it together, and they made of it a beating impish song. Men of measured merriment, men of measured merriment, damn the great executives, the men of measured merriment, damn the men with careful smiles, damn the men that run the shops, oh, damn their measured merriment, the men with measured merriment, oh, damn their measured merriment, and damn their careful smiles. Part 2. While Martin developed in a jagged way from the boy of Wheatsylvania to mature man, 
His relations to Leora developed from loyal boy-and-girl adventurousness to lasting solidity. They had that understanding of each other known only to married people. A few married people. Wherein, for all their differences, they were as much indissoluble parts of a whole as are the eye and hand. Their identification did not mean that they dwelt always in rosy bliss. Because he was so intimately fond of her, and so sure of her, because anger and eager, hot injustices are but ways of expressing trust, Martin was irritated by her and querulous with her, as he would not have endured being with any other woman, any charming orchid. He stalked out now and then after a quarrel, disdaining to answer her, and for hours he left her alone, enjoying the knowledge that he was hurting her, that she was alone, waiting, perhaps weeping. Because he loved her, and also was fond of her, he was annoyed when she was less sleek, less suave than the women he encountered at Angus Dewar's. Mrs. Rouncefield was a worthy old waddler. Beside her, Leora was shining and exquisite. But Mrs. Dewar was of amber and ice. She was a rich young woman, dressed with distinction. She spoke with finishing school mock melodiousness. She was ambitious, and she was untroubled by the possession of a heart or a brain. She was, indeed, what Mrs. Irving Waters believed herself to be. In the simple gorgeousness of the Nautilus smart set, Mrs. Clay Treadgold had petted Leora and laughed at her if she lacked a shoe buckle or split an infinitive. But the gold-slippered Mrs. Dewar was accustomed to sneer at carelessness with the most courteous and unresentable and unmistakable sneers. As they returned by taxicab from the doers, Martin flared. "'Don't you ever learn anything. I remember once in Nautilus we stopped on a country road and talked till, oh, darn near dawn, and you were going to be so energetic. But here we are again tonight, with just the same thing. Good God, couldn't you even take the trouble to notice you had a spot of soot on your nose tonight? Mrs. Dewar noticed it all right. Why are you so sloppy?' Why can't you take a little care? And why can't you make an effort, anyway, to have something to say? You just sit there at dinner. You just sit and look healthy. Don't you want to help me? Mrs. Dewar will probably help Angus to become president of the American Medical Association in about twenty years. And by that time, I suppose you'll have me back in Dakota as assistant to Hesselink. Leora had been snuggling beside him in the unusual luxury of a taxicab. She sat straight now, and when she spoke, she had lost the casual independence with which she usually regarded life. "'Dear, I'm awfully sorry. I went out this afternoon. I went out and had a facial massage, so as to look nice for you. And then I knew you liked conversation, so I got my little book about modern painting that I bought, and I studied it terribly hard.' but tonight I just couldn't seem to get the conversation around to modern painting. He was sobbing, with her head on his shoulder. Oh, you poor, scared, bullied kid, trying to be grown up with these dollar chasers. Part 3 After the first days of white tile and bustling cleverness at the Rouncefield Clinic, 
Martin had the desire to tie up a few loose knots of his streptolysin research. When Angus Dewar discovered it, he hinted, "'Look here, Martin. I'm glad you're keeping on with your science, but if I were you, I wouldn't, I think, waste too much energy on mere curiosity.' Dr. Roundsfield was speaking about it the other day. We'd be glad to have you do all the research you want. Only we'd like it if you went at something practical. Take, for instance, if you could make a tabulation of the blood counts in a couple of hundred cases of appendicitis and publish it, that'd get somewhere. And you could sort of bring in a mention of the clinic, and we'd all receive a little credit. And incidentally, maybe we could raise you to 3,000 a year then. This generosity had the effect of extinguishing Martin's desire to do any research whatever. Angus is right. What he means is, as a scientist, I'm finished. I am. I'll never try to do anything original again. It was at this time, when Martin had been with the clinic for a year, that his streptolysin paper was published in the Journal of Infectious Diseases. He gave reprints to Roundsfield and to Angus. They said extremely nice things, which showed that they had not read the paper. And again, they suggested his tabulating blood counts. He also sent a reprint to Max Gottlieb at the McGurk Institute of Biology. Gottlieb wrote to him in that dead black spiderweb script. Dear Martin, I have read your paper with great pleasure. The curves of the relation of hemolysin production to age of culture are illuminating. I have spoken about you to Tubbs. When are you coming to us? To me. Your laboratory and deaner are waiting for you here. The last thing I want is to be a mystic, but I feel when I see your fine engraved letterhead of a clinic and a rouncefield that you should be tired of trying to be a good citizen and ready to come back to work. We shall be glad and Dr. Tubbs, if you can come. Truly yours, M. Gottlieb. I'm simply going to adore New York, said Leora. Chapter 26 The McGurk Building A sheer wall, thirty blank stories of glass and limestone, down in the pinch triangle whence New York rules a quarter of the world. Martin was not overwhelmed by his first hint of New York. After a year in the Chicago Loop, Manhattan seemed leisurely. But when, from the elevated railroad, he beheld the Woolworth Tower, he was exalted. To him, architecture had never existed. Buildings were larger or smaller bulks, containing more or less interesting objects. His most impassioned architectural comment had been, "'There's a cute bungalow.' be nice place to live. Now, he pondered, like to see that tower every day, clouds and storms behind it and everything, so sort of satisfying. He came along Cedar Street, among thunderous trucks portly with wares from all the world, came to the bronze doors of the McGurk building, and a corridor of intemperately colored terracotta, with murals of Andean Indians, pirates booming up the Spanish main, guarded gold trains, and the stout walls of Cartagena. At the Cedar Street end of the corridor, a private street, one block long, was the bank of the Andes and Antilles, Ross McGurk, chairman of the board, 
in whose gold-crusted sanctity red-headed Yankee exporters drew drafts on Quito, and clerks hurled breathless Spanish at bulky women. A sign indicated at the Liberty Street end, Passenger Offices, McGurk Line, Weekly Sailings for the West Indies and South America. Born to the prairies, never far from the site of the cornfields, Martin was conveyed to blazing lands and portentous enterprises. One of the row of bronze-barred elevators was labeled Express to McGurk Institute. He entered it proudly, feeling himself already a part of the godly association. They rose swiftly, and he had but half-second glimpses of ground-glass doors with the signs of mining companies, lumber companies, Central American Railroad companies. The McGurk Institute is probably the only organization for scientific research in the world which is housed in an office building. It has the 29th and 30th stories of the McGurk building, and the roof is devoted to its animal house and to tiled walks along which, above a world of stenographers and bookkeepers and earnest gentlemen who desire to sell better-built garments to the golden dons of the Argentine, Santa rapt scientists dreaming of osmosis in Spiragyra. Later, Martin was to note that the reception room of the Institute was smaller, yet more forbiddingly polite, in its white paneling and Chippendale chairs, than the lobby of the Rouncefield Clinic. But now he was unconscious of the room, of the staccato girl attendant, of everything except that he was about to see Max Gottlieb for the first time in five years. At the door of the laboratory, he stared hungrily. Gottlieb was thin-cheeked and dark as ever, his hawk nose bony, his fierce eyes demanding, but his hair had gone gray, the flesh round his mouth was sunken, and Martin could have wept at the feebleness with which he rose. The old man peered down at him, his hand on Martin's shoulder, but he said only, Ah, this is good. Your laboratory is three doors down the hall. But I object to one thing in the good paper you send me. You say, The regularity of the rate at which the streptolysin disappears suggests that an equation may be found. But it can, sir. Then why did you not make the equation? Well, I don't know. I wasn't enough of a mathematician. Then you should not have published till you knew your math. I... Look, Dr. Gottlieb, do you really think I know enough to work here? I want terribly to succeed. Succeed? I've heard that word. It is English? Oh, yes. It is a word that little schoolboys use at the University of Winnemac. It means passing examinations. But there are no examinations to pass here. Martin... Let us be clear. You know something of laboratory technique. You have heard about these bacilli. You are not a good chemist and mathematician. Fooey. Most terrible. But you have curiosity, and you are stubborn. You do not accept rules. Therefore, I think you will either make a very good scientist or a very bad one. And if you are bad enough, you will be popular with the rich ladies who rule this city, New York, and you can give lectures for a living or even become, if you get to be plausible enough, a college president. So anyway, 
It will be interesting. Half an hour later, they were arguing ferociously, Martin asserting that the whole world ought to stop warring and trading and writing and get straightway into laboratories to observe new phenomena. Gottlieb insisting that there were already too many facile scientists, that the one thing necessary was the mathematical analysis, and often the destruction, of phenomena already observed. It sounded bellicose, and all the while Martin was blissful with the certainty that he had come home. The laboratory in which they talked, Gottlieb pacing the floor, his long arms fantastically knotted behind his thin back, Martin, leaping on and off tall stools, was not in the least remarkable. A sink, a bench with racks of numbered test tubes, a microscope, a few notebooks and hydrogen ion charts, a grotesque series of bottles connected by glass and rubber tubes on an ordinary kitchen table at the end of the room. Yet now and then, during his tirades, Martin looked about reverently. Gottlieb interrupted their debate. What work do you want to do here? Why, sir, I'd like to help you if I can. I suppose you're cleaning up some things on the synthesis of antibodies. Yes, I think I can bring immunity reactions under the mass action law. But you are not to help me. You are to do your own work. What do you want to do? This is not a clinic with patients going through so neat in a row. I want to find a hemolysin for which there's an antibody. There isn't any for streptolysin. I'd like to work with staphylolysin. Would you mind? I do not care what you do. If you just do not steal my staph cultures out of the icebox, and if you will look mysterious all the time, so Dr. Tubbs, our director, will think you are up to something big. So, I have only one suggestion. When you get stuck in a problem, I have a fine collection of detective stories in my office. But no, should I be serious, this once, when you are just come? Perhaps I am a crank, Martin. There are many who hate me. There are plots against me. Oh, you think I imagine it, but you shall see. I make many mistakes. But one thing I keep always pure, the religion of a scientist. To be a scientist it is not just a different job, so that a man should choose between being a scientist and being an explorer or a bond salesman or a physician or a king or a farmer. It is a tangle of very obscure emotions, like mysticism or wanting to write poetry. It makes its victim all different from the good, normal man. The normal man he does not care much what he does, except that he should eat and sleep and make love. But the scientist is intensely religious. He is so religious that he will not accept quarter truths, because they are an insult to his faith. He wants that everything should be subject to inexorable laws. He is equal opposed to the capitalists who think their silly money-grabbing is a system, and to liberals who think man is not a fighting animal. He takes both the American booster and the European aristocrat, and he ignores all their blithering. Ignores it. All of it. He hates the preachers who talk their fables, but he is not too kindly to the anthropologists and historians who can only make guesses, 
yet they have the nerve to call themselves scientists. Oh yes, he is a man that all nice, good-natured people should naturally hate. He speaks no meaner of the ridiculous faith healers and chiropractors than he does of the doctors that want to snatch our science before it is tested, and rush around hoping they heal people, and spoiling all the clues with their footsteps. And worse than the men like hogs, worse than the imbeciles who have not even heard of science, he hates pseudoscientists, guess scientists, like these psychoanalysts. And worse than those comic dream scientists, he hates the men that are allowed in a clean kingdom like biology, but know only one textbook, and how to lecture to nincompoops all so popular. He is the only real revolutionary, the authentic scientist, because he alone knows how little he knows. He must be heartless. He lives in a cold, clear light. Yet this is a funny thing. Really, in private, he is not cold nor heartless, so much less cold than the professional optimists. The world has always been ruled by the philanthropists, by the doctors that want to use therapeutic methods they do not understand, by the soldiers that want something to defend their country against, by the preachers that yearn to make everybody listen to them, by the kind manufacturers that love their workers, by the eloquent statesmen and soft-hearted authors. And see once what a fine mess of hell they have made of the world. Maybe now it is time for the scientist, who works and searches and never goes around howling how he loves everybody. But once again, always remember that not all men who work at science are scientists. So few. The rest, secretaries, press agents, camp followers. To be a scientist is like being a Goethe. It is born in you. Sometimes I think you have a little of it born in you. If you have, there is only one thing. No, there is two things you must do. Work twice as hard as you can and keep people from using you. I will try to protect you from success. It is all I can do. So, I should wish, Martin, that you will be very happy here. May Koch bless you. Part 2 Five rapt minutes Martin spent in the laboratory which was to be his. Smallish but efficient, the bench exactly the right height, a proper sink with pedal taps. When he had closed the door and let his spirit flow out and fill that minute apartment with his own essence, he felt secure. No pickerbaw or roundsfield could burst in here and drag him away to be explanatory and plausible and public. He would be free to work, instead of being summoned to the package wrapping and dictation of breezy letters, which men call work. He looked out of the broad window above his bench and saw that he did have the coveted Woolworth Tower to keep and gloat on. Shut in to a joy of precision, he would nevertheless not be walled out from flowing life. He had, to the north, not the Woolworth Tower alone, but the Singer Building, the arrogant magnificence of the City Investing Building. To the west, tall ships were riding, tugs were bustling, all the world went by. 
Below his cliff, the streets were feverish. Suddenly, he loved humanity as he loved the decent, clean rows of test tubes, and he prayed then the prayer of the scientist. God, give me unclouded eyes and freedom from haste. God, give me a quiet and relentless anger against all pretense and all pretentious work and all work left slack and unfinished. God, give me a restlessness whereby I may neither sleep nor accept praise till my observed results equal my calculated results, or in pious glee I discover and assault my error. God, give me strength not to trust to God. Part 3 He walked all the way up to their inconsiderable hotel in the thirties, and all the way the crowd stared at him, the slim, pale, black-eyed, beaming young man who thrust among them, half-running, seeing nothing, yet in a blur seeing everything, gallant buildings, filthy streets, relentless traffic, soldiers of fortune, fools, pretty women, frivolous shops, windy sky. His feet raced to the tune of, I've found my work, I've found my work, I've found my work. Leora was awaiting him. Leora, whose fate it was ever to wait for him in creaky rocking chairs in cheapish rooms. As he galloped in, she smiled, and all her thin, sweet body was illumined. Before he spoke, she cried, Oh, Sandy, I'm so glad. She interrupted his room-striding panegyrics on Max Gottlieb, on the McGurk Institute, on New York, on the charms of Staphylolison, by a meek, Dear, how much are they going to pay you? He stopped with a bump. Gosh, I forgot to ask. Oh? Now you look here. This isn't a Rouncefield clinic. I hate these buzzards that can't see anything but making money. I know, Sandy. Honestly, I don't care. I was just wondering what kind of a flat we'll be able to afford, so I can begin looking for it. Go on. Dr. Gottlieb said... It was three hours after, at eight, when they went to dinner. Part Four The city of magic was to become to Martin neither a city nor any sort of magic, but merely a route. Their flat, the subway, the institute, a favorite inexpensive restaurant, a few streets of laundries and delicatessens and movie theaters. But tonight it was a fog of wonder. They dined at the Brevoort, of which Gustav Sondalius had told them. This was in 1916, before the country had become wholesome and sterile, and the Brevoort was a tumult of French uniforms, caviar, louis, dangling neckties, Nuit Saint-Georges, illustrators, Grand Marnier, British intelligence officers, brokers, conversation, and Martel V.O. It's a fine, crazy bunch, said Martin. Do you realize we can stop being respectable now? Irving Waters isn't watching us, or Angus. Would we be too insane if we had a bottle of champagne? He awoke next day to fret that there must be a trick somewhere, as there had been in Nautilus, in Chicago. But as he set to work, he seemed to be in a perfect world. 
the Institute deftly provided all the material and facilities he could desire. Animals, incubators, glassware, cultures, media. And he had a thoroughly trained technician. Garçon, they called him at the Institute. He really was let alone. He really was encouraged to do individual work. He really was associated with men who thought, not in terms of poetic posters or of $2,000 operations, but of colloids and sporulation and electrons, and of the laws and energies which governed them. On his first day, there came to greet him the head of the Department of Physiology, Dr. Rippleton Holabird. Holabird seemed, though Martin had found his name starred in physiological journals, too young and too handsome to be the head of a department. A tall, slim, easy man with a trim mustache. Martin had been reared in the school of Cliff Clausen. He had not realized, till he heard Dr. Holabird's quick greeting, that a man's voice may be charming without effeminacy. Holabird guided him through the two floors of the Institute, and Martin beheld all the wonders of which he had ever dreamed. If it was not so large, McGurk ranked in equipment with Rockefeller, Pasteur, McCormick, Lister. Martin saw rooms for sterilizing glass and preparing media, for glass blowing, for the polariscope and the spectroscope, and a steel and cement walled combustion chamber. He saw a museum of pathology and bacteriology to which he longed to add. There was a department of publications whence were issued the Institute Reports, and the American Journal of Geographic Pathology, edited by the director, Dr. Tubbs. There was a room for photography, a glorious library, an aquarium for the Department of Marine Biology, and, Dr. Tubbs's own idea, a row of laboratories which visiting foreign scientists were invited to use as their own. A Belgian biologist and a Portuguese biochemist were occupying guest laboratories now. And once, Martin thrilled to learn, Gustav Sondalius had been here. Then Martin saw the Berkeley Saunders centrifuge. The principle of the centrifuge is that of the cream separator. It collects as sediment the solid scattered through a liquid, such as bacteria in a solution. Most centrifuges are hand- or water-power contrivances the size of a large cocktail shaker. But this noble implement was four feet across, electrically driven, the central bowl enclosed in armor plate fastened with levers like a submarine hatch, the hole mounted on a cement pillar. Holabird explained, There are only three of these in existence. They're made by Berkeley Saunders in England. You know the normal speed, even for a good centrifuge, is about 4,000 revolutions a minute. This does 20,000 a minute. Fastest in the world. Eh? Jove, they do give you the stuff to work with, gloated Martin. He really did, under Holabird's handsome influence, say Jove, not Gosh. Yes, McGurk and Tubbs are the most generous men in the scientific world. I think you'll find it very pleasant to be here, Doctor. I know I will. Shall. And Jove, it's awfully nice of you to take me around this way. Can't you see how much I'm enjoying my chance to display my knowledge? 
there's no form of egotism so agreeable and so safe as being a Cicerone. But we still have the real wonder of the Institute to behold, doctor, down this way. The real wonder of the Institute had nothing visible to do with science. It was the hall, in which lunched the staff, and in which occasional scientific dinners were given, with Mrs. McGurk as hostess. Martin gasped, and his head went back as his glance ran from glistening floor to black and gold ceiling. The hall rose the full height of the two floors of the Institute. Clinging to the soaring wall, above the dais on which lunched the director and the seven heads of departments, was a carved musician's gallery. Against the oak paneling of the walls were portraits of the pontiffs of science, in crimson robes, with a vast mural by Maxfield Parrish. And above all was an electrolier of a hundred globes. "'Gosh! Jove!' said Martin. "'I never knew there was such a room.' Holabird was generous. He did not smile. "'Oh, perhaps it's almost too gorgeous.' It's Capitola's pet creation. Capitola is Mrs. Ross McGurk, wife of the founder. She's really an awfully nice woman, but she does love movements and associations. Terry Wicket, one of the chemists here, calls this Bonanza Hall. Yet it does inspire you when you come in to lunch all tired and grubby. Now, let's go call on the director. He told me to bring you in. After the Babylonian splendor of the hall, Martin expected to find the office of Dr. A. DeWitt Tubbs fashioned like a Roman bath. But it was, except for a laboratory bench at one end, the most rigidly business-like apartment he had ever seen. Dr. Tubbs was an earnest man, whiskered like a terrier, very scholarly, and perhaps the most powerful American exponent of cooperation in science but he was also a man of the world, fastidious of boots and waistcoats. He had graduated from Harvard, studied on the continent, been professor of pathology in the University of Minnesota, president of Hartford University, minister to Venezuela, editor of the Weekly Statesman, and president of the Sanity League, finally director to McGurk. He was a member both of the American Academy of Arts and Letters and of the Academy of Sciences. Bishops, generals, liberal rabbis, and musical bankers dined with him. He was one of the distinguished men to whom the newspapers turned for authoritative interviews on all subjects. You realized before he had talked to you for ten minutes that here was one of the few leaders of mankind who could discourse on any branch of knowledge, yet could control practical affairs and drive stumbling mankind on to sane and reasonable ideals. Though a Max Gottlieb might in his research show a certain talent, yet his narrowness, his sour and antic humor, kept him from developing the broad view of education, politics, commerce, and all other noble matters which marked Dr. A. DeWitt Tubbs. But the director was as cordial to the insignificant Martin Aerosmith as though Martin were a visiting senator. He shook his hand warmly. He unbent in a smile. His baritone was mellow. Dr. Aerosmith, 
I trust we shall do more than merely say you are welcome here. I trust we shall show you how welcome you are. Dr. Gottlieb tells me that you have a natural aptitude for cloistered investigation, but that you have been looking over the fields of medical practice and public health before you settled down to the laboratory. I can't tell you how wise I consider you to have made that broad preliminary survey. Too many would-be scientists lack the tutored vision which comes from coordinating all mental domains. Martin was dazed to discover that he had been making a broad survey. Now, you'll doubtless wish to take some time, perhaps a year or more, in getting into your stride, Dr. Aerosmith. I shan't ask you for any reports. So long as Dr. Gottlieb feels that you yourself are satisfied with your progress, I shall be content. Only if there is anything in which I can advise you, from a perhaps somewhat longer career in science, please believe that I shall be delighted to be of aid, and I am quite sure the same obtains with Dr. Holabird here, though he really ought to be jealous, because he is one of our youngest workers. In fact, I call him my enfant terrible. But you, I believe, are only thirty-three, and you quite put the poor fellow's nose out. Holabird merrily suggested, Oh no, doctor, it's been put out long ago. You forget Terry Wicket. He's under forty. Oh, him, murmured Dr. Tubbs. Martin had never heard a man disposed of so poisonously with such politeness. He saw that in Terry Wicket there might be a serpent, even in this paradise. Now, said Dr. Tubbs, perhaps you might like to glance around my place here. I pride myself on keeping our card indices and letter files as unimaginatively as though I were an insurance agent. But there is a certain exotic touch in these charts. He trotted across the room to show a nest of narrow drawers filled with scientific blueprints. Just what they were charts of, he did not say, nor did Martin ever learn. He pointed to the bench at the end of the room and laughingly admitted, You can see there what an inefficient fellow I really am. I keep asserting that I have given up all the idyllic delights of pathological research for the less fascinating but so very important and fatiguing cares of the directorship. Yet such is the weakness of genus homo that sometimes, when I ought to be attending to practical details, I become obsessed by some probably absurd pathological concept. And so ridiculous am I that I can't wait to hasten down the hall to my regular laboratory. I must always have a bench at hand and an experiment going on. Oh, I'm afraid I'm not the moral man that I pose as being in public. Here I am, married to executive procedure, and still I hanker for my first love, milady science. I think it's fine you still have an itch for it, Martin ventured. He was wondering just what experiments Dr. Tubbs had been doing lately. The bench seemed rather unused. And now, Doctor... I want you to meet the real director of the Institute, my secretary, Miss Pearl Robbins. Martin had already noticed Miss Robbins. You could not help noticing Miss Robbins. She was thirty-five and stately, a creamy goddess. She rose to shake hands, a firm, competent grasp, 
and to cry in her glorious contralto. Dr. Tubbs is so complimentary only because he knows that otherwise I wouldn't give him his afternoon tea. We've heard so much about your cleverness from Gottlieb that I'm almost afraid to welcome you, Dr. Aerosmith, but I do want to. Then, in a glow, Martin stood in his laboratory looking at the Woolworth Tower. He was dizzy with these wonders, his own wonders now. In Rippleton Holabird, so gaily elegant yet so distinguished, he hoped to have a friend. He found Dr. Tubbs somewhat sentimental, but he was moved by his kindness and by Miss Robin's recognition. He was in a haze of future glory when his door was banged open by a hard-faced, red-headed, soft-shirted man of thirty-six or eight. "'Aerosmith,' the intruder growled, "'my name is Wicket, Terry Wicket. I'm a chemist. I'm with Gottlieb. Well, I noticed the Holy Wren was showing you the menagerie.' "'Dr. Holabird?' Him. Well, you must be more or less intelligent if Pa Gottlieb let you in. How's it starting? Which kind are you going to be? One of the polite birds that uses the Institute for Social Climbing and catches him a rich wife? Or one of the roughnecks, like me and Gottlieb? Terry Wicket's croak was as irritating a sound as Martin had ever heard. He answered in a voice curiously like that of Rippleton Holabird. I don't think you need to worry. I happen to be married already. Oh, don't let that fret you, Aerosmith. Divorces are cheap in this man's town. Well, did the Holy Wren show you Gladys the Tart? Huh? Gladys the Tart, or the Galloping Centrifuge. Oh, you mean the Berkeley Saunders? I do, soul of my soul. What'd you think of it? It's the finest centrifuge I've ever seen. Dr. Holabird said, "'Hell, he ought to say something. He went and got old Tubbs to buy it. He just loves it, Holy Wren does.' "'Why not? It's the fastest—sure, speediest centrifuge in the whole Vereinigten, and made of the best toothpick steel. The only trouble is, it always blows out fuses, and it spatters the bugs so that you need a gas mask if you're going to use it. And did you love dear old Tubbsy?' and the peerless pearl. I did. Fine. Of course, Tubbs is an illiterate jackass, but still, at that, he hasn't got persecution mania, like Gottlieb. Look here, Wicket. Is it Dr. Wicket? Uh-huh. M.D., Ph.D., but a first-rate chemist just the same. Well, Dr. Wicket, it seems to me a shame that a man of your talents would have to associate with idiots like Gottlieb and Tubbs and Holabird. I've just left a Chicago clinic where everybody is nice and sensible. I'd be glad to recommend you for a job there. Wouldn't be so bad. At least I'd avoid all the gassing at lunch in Bonanza Hall. Well, sorry I got your goat, Aerosmith, but you look all right to me. Thanks. Wicket grinned obscenely, red-headed, rough-faced, wiry, and snorted, "'By the way, did Holabird tell you about being wounded in the first month of the war, when he was a field marshal, or a hospital orderly, or something in the British Army?' "'He did not. He didn't mention the war.' "'He will. Well, Br'er Aerosmith, I look forward to many happy, happy years together, playing at the feet of Pa Gottlieb. So long.' 
My lab is right next to yours. Fool, Martin decided, and, well, I can stand him as long as I can fall back on Gottlieb and Holabird. But, the conceited idiot. Gosh, so Holabird was in the war. Invalided out, I guess. I certainly got back at Wicket on that. Did he tell you about his being a jolly old hero in the Blinken War, he said. And I came right back at him. I'm sorry to displease you, I said, but Dr. Holabird did not mention the war. The idiot. Well, I won't let him worry me. And indeed, as Martin met the staff at lunch, Wicket was the only one whom he did not find courteous, however brief their greetings. He did not distinguish among them. For days, most of the twenty researchers remained a blur. He confused Dr. Yo, head of the Department of Biology, with the carpenter who had come to put up shelves. The staff sat in hall at two long tables, one on the dais, one below. Tiny insect groups under the massy ceiling. They were not particularly noble of aspect, these possible Darwins and Huxleys and Pasteurs. None of them were wide-browed Plato's. Except for Rippleton Holabird and Max Gottlieb, and perhaps Martin himself, they looked like lunching grocers. Brisk, featureless young men, thick, mustached elders, and wimpish little men with spectacles, men whose collars did not meet. But there was a steady calm about them. There was, Martin believed, no anxiety over money in their voices, nor any restlessness of envy and scandalous gossip. They talked gravely or frivolously of their work, the one sort of work that, since it becomes part of the chain of discovered fact, is eternal, however forgotten the worker's name. As Martin listened to Terry Wicket, rude and slangy as ever, referring to himself as the boy chemist, speaking of this gaudy institute and our trusting new little brother Aerosmith, debating with a slight thin-beard man, Dr. William T. Smith, assistant in biochemistry, the possibility of increasing the effects of all enzymes by doses of X-rays. As he heard one associate member vituperate another for his notions of cell chemistry and denounce Ehrlich as the Edison of medical science, Martin perceived new avenues of exciting research. He stood on a mountain, and unknown valleys, craggy, tantalizing paths were open to his feet. Part 5 Dr. and Mrs. Rippleton Holabird invited them to dinner, a week after their coming. As Holabird's tweeds made Clay Treadgold's smartness seem hard and pretentious, so his dinner revealed Angus Dewar's affairs in Chicago as mechanical and joyless and a little anxious. Everyone whom Martin met at the Holabird's flat was a somebody, though perhaps a minor somebody, a goodish editor or a rising ethnologist, and all of them had Holabird's graceful casualness. The provincial Aerosmiths arrived on time, therefore fifteen minutes early. Before the cocktails appeared, in old Venetian glass, Martin demanded, Doctor, what problems are you getting after now in your physiology? Holabird was transformed into an ardent boy. With a deprecatory, 
Would you really like to hear about him? You needn't be polite, you know. He dashed into an exposition of his experiments, drawing sketches on the blank spaces in newspaper advertisements, on the back of a wedding invitation, on the flyleaf of a presentation novel, looking at Martin apologetically, learned yet gay. We're working on the localization of brain functions. I think we've gone beyond Bolton and Flexig. Oh, it's jolly exciting, exploring the brain. Look here. His swift pencil was sketching the cerebrum. The brain lived and beat under his fingers. He threw down the paper. I say, it's a shame to inflict my hobbies on you. Besides, the others are coming. Tell me, how is your work going? Are you comfortable at the Institute? Do you find you like people? Everybody except, to be frank, I'm jarred by Wicket. Generously. I know. His manner is slightly aggressive. But you mustn't mind him. He's really an extraordinarily gifted biochemist. He's a bachelor. Gives up everything for his work. And he doesn't really mean half the rude things he says. He detests me, among others. Has he mentioned me? Why, not especially. I have a feeling he goes around saying that I talk about my experiences in the war, which really isn't quite altogether true. Yes, in a burst, he did say that. I do rather wish he wouldn't. So sorry to have offended him by going and getting wounded. I'll remember and not do it again. Such a fuss for a war record as insignificant as mine. What happened was, when the war broke out in 14, I was in England, studying under Sherrington. I pretended to be a Canadian and joined up with the medical corps and got mine within three weeks and got hoofed out, and that was the end of my magnificent career. Here's somebody arriving. His easy gallantry won Martin complete. Leora was equally captivated by Mrs. Holabird, and they went home from the dinner in new enchantment. So began for them a white light of happiness. Martin was scarce more blissful in his undisturbed work than in his life outside the laboratory. All the first week he forgot to ask what his salary was to be. Then it became a game to wait until the end of the month. Evenings, in little restaurants, Leora and he would speculate about it. The Institute would surely not pay him less than the $2,500 a year he had received at the Roundsfield Clinic. But on evenings when he was tired, it dropped to 1500 And one evening, when they had Burgundy, he raised it to 3500 When the first monthly check came, neat in a little sealed envelope, he dared not look at it. He took it home to Leora. In their hotel room, they stared at the envelope as though it was likely to contain poison. Martin opened it shakily. He stared and whispered, Oh, those decent people. They're paying me. This is for $420. They're paying me 5000 a year. Mrs. Holabird, a white kitten of a woman, helped Leora find a three-room flat with a spacious living room in an old house near Gramercy Park and helped her furnish it with good bits, second-hand. When Martin was permitted to look, he cried, I hope we stay here for fifty years. 
This was the Grecian Isle where they found peace. Presently they had friends, the Holabirds, Dr. Billy Smith, the thin-bearded biochemist who had an intelligent taste in music and German beer, an anatomist whom Martin met at a Winnemac alumni dinner, and always Max Gottlieb. Gottlieb had found his own serenity. In the seventies he had a brown small flat, smelling of tobacco and leather books. His son Robert had graduated from City College and gone bustlingly into business. Miriam kept up her music while she guarded her father, a dumpling of a girl, holy fire behind the deceptive flesh. After an evening of Gottlieb's acrid doubting, Martin was inspired to hasten to the laboratory and attempt a thousand new queries into the laws of microorganisms, a task which usually began with blasphemously destroying all the work he had recently done. Even Terry Wicket became more tolerable. Martin perceived that Wicket's snarls were partly a Cliff Clausen misconception of humor, but partly a resentment, as great as Gottlieb's, of the morphological scientists who ticket things with the nicest little tickets, who name things and rename them and never analyze them. Wicket often worked all night. He was to be seen in shirt sleeves, his sulky red hair rumpled, sitting with a stopwatch before a constant temperature bath for hours. Now and then it was a relief to have the surly intentness of Wicket instead of the elegance of Rippleton Holabird, which demanded from Martin so much painful elegance in turn, at a time when he was sunk beyond sounding in his experimentation. <laughs>